Hi, this is Derek Carr, the founder, chairman of CSA, and the host of the CSA Podcast Show. And I have another guest that I am super excited to do uh, a session with, Megan Sanford, VP of and Chief Product Security Officer of Energy Management at Schneider Electric. And if you don't know her, you should, but if you don't know her, she is a founder of a number of things. She is a mother. She's a cyber emergency manager down to her core. She's a rock hunter, a genealogy enthusiast, certainly recognized as a critical infrastructure protection guru uh, by many. And she's into shopping, interior design, cars, specifically 300ZX. She repairs them, refurbs them, uh, and uh, is a car enthusiast. So, you know, this is a well-rounded, very interesting person. Can't wait to dive into your story. Welcome to the show, Megan. Great. Thank you so much, Derek. It's awesome to be here on this Friday morning. Yeah, this is, I love Friday mornings for doing this. You know, I do them at different times, different times of the week. This is a nice time. Like the bulk of the week is over and, uh, you know, the weekend. Everything's up from here. It's good. Exactly. So let's tell, yeah, let's, let's sort of peel back the onion layers of, uh, of the Megan Sanford story. Um, I've been looking forward to this personally. And I know that a lot of people know you, but they may not know some things about you. And uh, so this is a, this will be a fun opportunity. Uh, I always, you know, I have some things I say, I suppose, on every one of these episodes, you know, my shtick, so to speak, that superhero, you know, cybersecurity people are modern day superheroes and superheroes always have backstories. So let's go all the way back, you know, to your origin story and, you know, what, uh, you know, I know you and I know some of your story. You have an origin story, as I think you sort of feel about your origin, not a vat of acid that you emerged from, but but nonetheless, a formative stages made you who you are. And so let's go all the way back to where you grew up and, and you know, what, what made you you? Sure. No, and thank you. The, the origin story. I was a, so starting off, I was a tremendous X-Men fan when I was a child and collected the cards, had the, uh, all the trading cards that you could get with X-Men. And origin stories sounds like, a, an, like, a, like an X-Men series, X-Men Origins or something. So... I'll, uh, I love it, and I'll and I'll kick off by saying, so I'm from a very, very, very small town. I'm from Charlotte County, Virginia, which is in Southern Virginia. Uh, the tip of the county basically touches the North Carolina border. It's a heavy agricultural, heavy, um, heavy tobacco, heavy uh, crops, corn, soy. It's a farming community. My uh, mother's family is from the area, uh, going back several generations. So I spent a ton of time uh, with my mom's family there because her and my father had split up. They uh, they had lived in the Raleigh area. And then when I was born, she decided to move back home because she worked full time. She knew that she was going to be a single mom and her grandparents. So my great grandparents, Naomi and Addis, they really were kind of like a parenting unit alongside my mom. And I grew up with, you know, two great grandparents that were in their 70s when I was born. So, I mean, they were they were up in age, but they were retired. They were able to spend all of their time with me. I was the first great grandchild. My mom had been the first grandchild and my grandmother was the first daughter. So it was kind of a continuation of like the first females born in every generation. So I grew up not spoiled with like money or, you know, gifts or anything like that. But I was really spoiled with time. And these were people that, you know, were young adults coming up in the 1920s and they lived through the Great Depression. So I often say to people that many times I feel like I'm generationally homeless because I was 
raised by a baby boomer with my mom, but I was also raised by members of what we call the great generation that lived through the wars and they were more frugal and they had, you know, very strong nation of hard work. And so in Charlotte County, uh, as a little girl, you, you didn't have too many options to get involved in things in the community. It was like, you're either going to do ballet or you're going into softball. My mom put me into ballet. I am not a graceful person. I am not an athletic person, but uh, it was fun and I, I made lots of friends. And to be honest with you, even as a young child, as a young girl, I was very precocious. People say that, you know, because I was an only child, I was almost like talking to a mini adult. I was talking to my aunt on my dad's side last weekend and she was saying, you were scary smart. Like you were just like this tiny little child and you would come up to adults and start having like a full blown intelligent conversation with adults. And they were like, ah, oh, this kid's kind of, kind of different. And I knew that I was different and I had friends growing up, but I was definitely like the nerd girl. I loved archeology span and I love reading and I think uh, by the by the fourth grade, I was reading Interview with the Vampire, right? Like that is a very mature, very involved novel for someone so young to be reading. But I mean, that's who I was. Maybe I hated being a child. I don't know. But my my um, my thing as a child was being very focused on growing up as quickly as possible and wanting to get out into the world. But my mother uh, one of the strongest women I've ever known, ever met. My mother is tougher than a $3 steak. She had a great career of her own uh, as a nurse. And then she was promoted into kind of marketing for MRIs and sales. And so my mom was a self-made woman and she, uh, she, she had high expectations for me and she ran her home with structure and um, you know, it, it was it was a very good thing. And she used to say, you know, I'm I'm hard on you because life is hard. And I at the time, you know, you're you feel like I don't have a mom like the other moms. It's like coddling me. And my mom didn't bake cookies. She wasn't that type of mom. We weren't doing that. But I mean, she was just very real. And I feel like she for who I was. She absolutely developed me into my full potential, and I can never thank her enough for that. And it's always been kind of, um, you know, with her as a single mom, it was this, hey, kid, it's me and you against the world scenario. And I mean, it's still the same way. And with my father, he was in Raleigh, but um, he was also a, a sales executive and he became successful in his own right. But he struggled with alcohol addiction throughout his life several ups and downs in there. And ultimately, um, dad passed away in his early 60s a few years ago. And that was very hard. But I also recognize some behaviors and traits in me that come out as a professional and as an adult. When you're, uh, there's a great book called Daughters of uh, Fathers That Are Alcoholics. And um, you develop people pleasing uh, characteristics, you develop high organization, you develop great anticipation skills, because when you're around your parent and if they have an addiction, the children in the household, especially daughters, learn to cope with that and anticipate when something bad could happen because it's like, oh, well, the house better be clean or, you know, I, I better, you know, have my hair done or I better look nice, you know, because I don't want dad to to get upset and it could send him into drinking this afternoon or 
just situations like that. And I have two half sisters through my dad as well. And I often say that my giving me my sisters, my half sisters was the best gift that my dad ever gave me. And my dad was a great person too. He just, uh, he dealt with his own demons, but he was a very smart guy, very good uh, sales leader, great executive, very professional, but he dealt with these demons and in turn, the family coped with it, you know, uh, ultimately until his passing. But we see, you know, again, behaviors play out between me and my sisters where it's like, oh, I, I totally know why I'm acting this way or I totally know why I'm doing this people pleasing thing over here. And, and it's because you develop it as, uh, as a way to operate as a child to keep your parents happy. So uh, all in all, I had a really good childhood. I went to great public school system. I graduated from Randolph Henry High School. I knew that I wanted to go into political science or something with Homeland Security. And uh, ultimately, uh, I left Charlotte County and moved to Richmond. And I went to Virginia Commonwealth University starting in 2004, and I graduated in 2007. And my my college uh, time is definitely kind of a, a break or a, another milestone. If you were to divide my history, it's kind of like childhood, college. Then I started work in the governor's office. I got a great internship there, and then I transitioned to the private sector after state government with GE, Rockwell, and now I'm at Schneider. But if we wanted to dig in on any of those areas, um, happy to happy to talk about any of those things. Yeah, yeah, we'll do sort of one onion layer, you know, at a time. But it's uh, I knew some of your personal stories. You shared it before, and you know, when I when I joke about people's backstories, but you you do have your sort of your meteorite that landed and gave you some maybe gave you some special powers. You know that that some of those things that were on you, forming you. Um, I get, you know, how that makes you, you know, you have insights today. Like, oh, this is why I do what I, you know, some of the things that I, that I do. It, you have an interesting bachelor's degree. I mean, you talked about, you know, sort of going straight to um, wanting to go into government and security. So um, if I'm not mistaken, your bachelor's was home in Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness? Yes, it is. So back in 2004 timeframe, I was trying to decide what college I wanted to go to. And I was uh, checking out William and Mary, checking out UVA. Those were kind of my first choices. And then I started to talk to more people that were forming the Homeland Security industry. Remember, this was just like a few years past 9-11, right? So yeah. the, everything with Department of Homeland Security, all of that federal and state level infrastructure was standing up. And I became aware that Virginia Commonwealth University was going to have a bachelor's degree in Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. And they were the first school in the country to offer that. So I was like, hmm, this is right in my backyard. I could stay in, you know, I could go to the Richmond area. I, my mom had moved to Richmond at that point. I was like, I could, again, I could kind of be near my mom. I could keep everything uh, in place with my family as well in Virginia. So I went to VCU and um, Colonel Bill Parrish was my mentor there and he was one of the founders of that program. And ultimately I, I graduated in 07 and I, I was one of the first 20 people that came out of that program that year. They had a, a winter time frame graduation and then they had a spring graduation and I was part of the, the spring cohort there that graduated. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I ask a lot of times where security or technology or control systems are all above intersect with people's lives. And it's been very different for guests, right? 
um, something like, well, I was 12 years old and my, you know, my parent owned a manufacturing facility, you know, uh, and others are like, no, I didn't, none of that touched my life till I was 50 or 30 or whatever. And so you've got a strong security component and um, I suspect critical infrastructure was right there in the discussion, thinking about the kinds of things that were happening in between 2004 and 2007, um, you know, critical infrastructure was probably, you had some exposure to that, I'm assuming, as part of Homeland Security. Oh, it's everything. It was everything. I mean, it, in 2007, we saw the first iteration of the National Infrastructure Protection Plan. So that had just come out. And so how my story kind of works is that I was graduating in the spring and I remember a classmate turning around in class and saying, hey, I'm concluding my internship in the governor's office and I think they want to get another person in there. Would you be interested in interviewing? We, we think that you'd be great. And I was like, whoa, like this could be life changing. Like, of course, I'm going to I'm going to show up to this interview. I'm going to do my best to nail it. And I hope I get the internship because, you know, I knew that that would be life changing. Right. This could be a local job in Homeland Security in the governor's office of Virginia, where you're in the heat of seeing everything that's going on in the Commonwealth. And you're acting as a liaison and in interpreting federal policy. So I was like, I would love this. This is exactly what I want to do. So I interviewed. And they hired me and that was great. And I started an interoperable communications, which was like radio communications, common language protocols, getting everyone to switch from using, you know, the 10 code system to common language so that they could understand one another while they were responding to a fire or a medical event or whatever. Right. So I had uh, I had a great foundation just in kind of how local sheriff's offices work, local law enforcement, local EMS, 911, public safety access points, PSAP. So that was my, my first core foundation. And then from interoperable communications, this guy, Mike McAllister, he came in from Virginia Department of Transportation, but he uh, was on assignment to the governor's office and he knew critical infrastructure protection. Chris Essid was my boss uh, when I was working interoperable communications. Chris is up at DHS now uh, in Office of Emergency Communications still. So he's in the field. I still uh, chatted up with Chris from time to time. Mike came in and he was um, former uh, U.S. Navy and he had done physical security at. Yeah, he had U.S. Navy. He had done physical security at our embassies in Jakarta, Copenhagen, and Rome during the 70s, during the embassy sacking days. And so Mike McAllister taught me everything that I knew about critical infrastructure protection, executive protection, uh, physical site security assessments, all of that, guns, guards, and gates. I learned everything that I know from Mike McAllister. And I, I, I worked hard and we worked on developing a state level version of the National Infrastructure Protection Plan and the Commonwealth of Virginia, we were the first to get out a state level plan. And that was my first like bite at policy work. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And within two or three years, we were able to stay on from Tim Kaine's administration. We uh, we were held over into Bob McDonald's administration, which is a you know it's it's a big feat to survive a gubernatorial transition in Virginia because as a political appointee, you can be you know thrown out when the new governor comes in. Because we were Homeland Security, not really politically people, also just personality wise and very politically moderate. Um, I got to stay on, and I was promoted to leading critical infrastructure protection for the Commonwealth of Virginia. 
I think I was like 26 years old. I mean, that's nuts. Can you imagine a 26 year old being given that responsibility? But I had worked for it and I had been there and I, I knew what I was talking about. And it was a, it was just a tremendous time in my life of fast learning, um, fast experiences and policy. And I was uh, kind of burning the midnight oil up and down 95 going up to national capital region all the time. So what I, uh, three things that three things that people could choose. I mean, there's things in your life that formed you that people can't replicate. They can't choose to have some of the you know experiences you had growing up. But what are three things you think that you chose to do that helped you arrive, you know, at that age, at that sort of position? Things that maybe listeners could say, oh, if I got off my butt this weekend, I can start studying that. Or, you know, I, I don't want to plant the seed of what you might say, but do, do a few things come to mind and say, yeah, the, these steps I took definitely helped me land that such a, an amazing, interesting position at 26 years old. So I, I knew the content. So it was easy. I think that people could tell talking to me and interacting with me that I knew what I was talking about. I took the time to study the policy. I took the time to learn the stakeholders. But it's it's really something else because there were lots of students that knew the content. There were plenty of smart people in my college programs. But let's, me, let's take that apart for just a sec. When you say, you know, study. What, what was your discipline? If you want to know new content, whether it was academic or once you went on to the government work, if you want to know something, what was your regimen for, for study and knowing something? Well, to begin with, we had the National Infrastructure Protection Plan that had just come out. So you had tons of federal doctrine that was coming out. And what's interesting is that there wasn't a lot of content built at the time around Homeland Security. Everything was coming out. I, I, you know, I think that sometimes today people are like, oh, DHS comes out with something like every week. I can't keep up. It was like this on overload in in the formative years following 9-11. What's, so what's your reading habit? What is my reading habit? Yeah. How, how much information do you consume? Do you, do you do it early in the morning? Do you have a, do you have a method for that? Or are you just always consuming? What's your your intake? Yes. So I, I will cons I block out hours in my afternoon normally to read policy. I would read it over the weekend. I would print it out. I would mark it up. I mean, whenever I could, I wouldn't say that I was in like a particular discipline or I have particular structure. Like I, I read federal policy at 11 a.m. on Tuesdays. No, it was it was not like that. Right. But I was I was a. I was a, as Lily Allen would say, I was a weapon of massive consumption. I just read and I, I just read and I tried to learn as much as possible. But I also followed people around critical infrastructures. When we were doing these site assessments, I was, you know, I was the the twenty something lady in the background walking around with a clipboard taking notes while former special forces people that were hired by DHS to do these physical security site assessments while they were going around talking to the asset owners, having a cup of coffee with them. Okay, how many doors do you have on the outside of your facility? What does the lighting look like in the parking lot? Do you have armed or unarmed security? I mean, I, I learned by doing and I learned by showing up. I mean, that's the main thing that I think like, what did it why what did it for you versus somebody else that could have been going after the same opportunity? It was the fact that I I think that people found me to be reliable. They knew that I was going to show up. They knew that I was going to be professional. They knew that I was going to be on time. They knew that 
they could count on me not saying something that was going to embarrass the governor's office. I mean, mm. <laughs> I was I was dependable, right? And I knew what I was talking about. And it was also the way that I that I spoke or I went about a conversation or I I tried opening up to people or I tried being friendly. I tried to create an environment where people wanted to be around me and they wanted to be in the meetings that I was hosting because it was different or we were bringing a different viewpoint. So I don't know. I think those are all, there's a number of things in that in there that people might be willing to grab onto. You know, some is harder than other of being likable or people wanting to be in your meetings. That's maybe harder for some personalities than others, but the, the, this this concept of weapon of mass consumption, which I loved, um, and I don't know the origin story on that, but it's uh, it's a great term, and I think that's that was my suspicion about you, and I think that's that's something for people to think about, like, oh, I'd love to have you know one of these positions. Do I need to go to and you know, you did do the academic trek too, but some people were like, you know, I have to go get this official, official set of circum, you know, certifications and all this stuff. Well, maybe that'll help you. But one thing you could do is you could just start really diving into the subject matter with your personal time, and that could pay huge, you know, huge dividends. Um, but I just thought about something. I just thought about something because I talk about this from time to time, and I don't know exactly what it's called. But the best way for me to describe it, or I've had other people describe why they like working with me or what they thought a talent of mine was. When I was in the governor's office, Mike McAllister used to say that I had one of the highest uh, internal processing capabilities that he had ever seen in someone. He said that you can give Megan Sanford a policy document. You can give her uh, new processes we're supposed to follow. You can give her any type of subject matter and she will learn it in 15 to 30 minutes and be pretty much like not an expert on it, but able to be conversational on the topic, right? And that's that something like that, again, you know, I mentioned that in the fourth grade, I was reading an interview with the vampire. So I mean, reading contextualization, understanding facts and being able to connect dots and contextualize those facts, that's my superpower. And then somehow being able to spit that all out in cohesive sentences that tell a story to everyday people that they can understand in a way that doesn't intimidate them and doesn't make them feel like somebody's trying to talk down to them. One thing, I'll go back to my past real quick. My great grandmother, Naomi, was raised in a time not by a wealthy family, but her father was a teacher, a small town teacher in like, you know, 1890s or something like that. And he said that one of the the lowest class things that someone could do is to talk above someone, the concept of talking above them. Meaning if you're having a conversation with someone and you know that they don't understand the words that you're using or you're kind of talking above them or condescending them, that is one of the rudest things that anyone can do. And so whenever I'm talking to whoever I'm with, I match the way that I'm talking to the person that I'm talking to to make them most comfortable with what I'm telling them. Yeah, that's another that's another interesting uh, nugget I think that emerges from this, and it's back to that people wanting to be in a meeting, you know, people you know liking working with you professionally. That would be part of that of that how you arrived at that, you know, doing practicing that sort of sort of thing. Like, who am I talking to, and and can we talk in a common vernacular and in a common way? Can I build that verbal bridge between me and that person? That's a powerful, 
a super powerful thing. I, I'm a big advocate and believer in, in that as well. As you were talking about it, I realize now you, you look at all this discussion and about chat GPT and you're like, whatever, there's there was Sanford GPT before that. <laughs> Plug it no, in. I mean, that's true. Oh my gosh. I had I had a friend of mine in college say, you know, Megan, Megan Sanford is equally prepared to talk about hegemonic war theory or 17th century French spoons. Like she can she can converse. Her range is very wide. You know, I'm a great person to have at like a cocktail party or a dinner party or something, right? <laughs> Well, uh, let's talk then. Uh, you've got these government years, uh, you know, well, it's really sort of three, two phases already. A heavy, heavy dose in, in all your academia, including your, we didn't really talk about it but, uh, or, or focus on it, but your master's degree. So deeper into homeland security and, and defense. And so that's your whole academic track. Then a really nice experience uh, in Commonwealth of Virginia. And then you go into original equipment manufacturers. And I say that plural because there's a there's a series uh, of them all very very recognizable absolutely who's up first well i mean we have to start with ge like ge i mean i i feel like if you've ever worked for ge and if you've left the company or you're still there or you retired from it or maybe one day i'll end i'll end up back at ge who knows okay once a GE person, you're a GE lifer. It's almost like a GE cult. You know how some like college teams like go Alabama or something like that? They're almost like a cult. People that work for GE are like that, okay? Uh, so how I got into GE. I was working in state government and I was uh, president of the Richmond InfraGuard chapter of FBI. I was a big proponent of the InfraGuard program back in the day. And my vice president, was this guy, Corey Jackson from GE, and he was standing up the GE product security incident response team. And I was actually an emergency manager at the time for Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services in Virginia. So I rolled off of the governor's office because I was like, oh, you know, I survived one gubernatorial transition. I like making money. I like not starving to death. So I probably wanna make sure that I have a job in state government after the governor is gone. So I was offered a full-time, you know, salaried, your legitimate state worker, non-political appointee role at Department of Agriculture. And I took it and I was having a great job really diving more into emergency management, continuity of government, COG, continuity of operations, coop, coop planning was really big at the time. So I did a ton of planning around disaster recovery and response, even response to zoonotic diseases, right? Things like um, avian influenza. We developed response plans from that. So then I'm moving from critical infrastructure to more incident command system, NIMS, uh, very foundational emergency management. And I love that work too. And then GE kept calling me and emailing me saying, hey, we've got this role open. You know, we think that you'd be great. And I was like, guys, like I'm, I'm really not qualified for this. I am not a cyber person. I am a physical security emergency manager. Like, I'm not going to be what you want. You're going to hire me and you're going to think that I'm an idiot and you're going to fire me in six months and then I'm not going to have a job. But he convinced me to join. And uh, I, uh, I, I got into the private sector and started writing response plans and I was attached to the blue team at General Electric that was doing all the pen testing. And 
these folks got me up to speed and I got up to speed quicker than I thought. And I'd say within six months to a year, maybe even a year and a half, I was getting pretty confident in vulnerability handling and disclosure. And that actually, key certs are what birthed product security programs for the OEMs. Project Basecamp, Dale Peterson, this was all kind of the start of why the industrial OEMs were like, we've got to get some religion around product security. We've got to look into 62443. We need to stand up our programs. And the first section, the cornerstone of the programs that they stood up were P-certs. So once my job evolved running the P-cert, I was like, hmm, you know, we have GE Global Research over here. We've got product security leaders that we've placed everywhere. I want to be a product security leader. I think that I can do this. So I just started taking on more work without asking anyone for permission. I just started carving out my next role and I started doing that job. And then people were so used to me doing this new job that they were like, yeah, we need you to do this full time. Can you also manage PCER and be the product security leader for GE Global Research? And I was like, yes, this is what I work for. And Richard Puckett, who's the CISO of Boeing, he was my boss that promoted me into that. He gave me my big shot as a formal product security leader. So thanks, Richard. And then maybe like a year after that, I was having a great time at GE, love GE. Rockwell Automation called. And Rockwell is a solid company. Allen Bradley, I mean, they make great products. If you're in industrial control systems, if you've never fantasized about working for Rockwell Automation, I don't know what to tell you. But they're a great company as well. And I took on the role of uh, chief product security officer there. I was a director and I had I had a great time. I, I loved it. But then Schneider Electric tried to recruit me. And again, I, I said, no, I said, you know, I haven't been in this role long enough. And then ultimately I was like, well, you know, Schneider has great travel and, you know, a French company. And so I kind of wanted to get back to more of like a very, very, very big company feeling. And so Schneider, you know, is more comparable in size to GE. So I took the opportunity here and uh, that's caught you up to the present day, I suppose. So I'm a collector. I have a couple of different collections. Are you looking at, uh, you know, Yokogawa? It's like, I got to get that too. I mean, you, you need to complete oh, the OEM collection. It's like, it's just like Pokemon. I've got to catch them all, you know? I love it. Well, let's, let's do another interview in, uh, in seven years. And I want to see what you, you know, collected, uh, you know, between now and, and then. So I'm going to send you a calendar <laughs> by now. Um, all right. So, um, you know, I know we could we could delve into so many of these different, you know, sort of threads or pull, pull so many of these different threads and we can't you know, have a four hour podcast. Um, I want to talk, you know, about your sort of I know a, a quite a passion project, another initiative that you are involved with. And it's, you know, no surprise based on the stuff you just were talking about that you were doing is to sort of where this came about. Um, but I thought maybe you could you could sort of delve into this um uh, ICS for ICS. Yes. So writing incident response plans in cyber, you learn that in the cyber industry, there's not a standard framework for how we organize. Um, you have great doctrine around what you do when you're running an incident and how to eradicate the threat and how to do digital forensics and all of those different components technically involved in running a response, the actions that you have to achieve 
to get a, a positive end result to get the customer back online and running as well as to perform an investigation of that of what actually happened that being said when you watch the way that cyber incidents play out without something like incident command system it is a very chaotic structure i have seen cases where something will happen that boom event will happen somebody stands up a conference call 70 people get on the conference call that same person that stood up the conference call is also taking the notes also capturing actions also scheduling the next call and 68 other people are just just there to be there without any specific action or role supporting the incident right so i wanted to do away with that i said there are better ways to organize responses and incident command system can work where you have a defined incident commander you have planning section chiefs you have ops section chiefs you have finance section chiefs you have an organized way to run an incident without creating what I call response fatigue. Response fatigue can set in very early and easily after the first 13 hours of a response. Once you do a 12 hour shift and you're still going, you need to be rotating people in and out. And in most organizations today, they're not doing it. They're not following a standard system like incident command system. Incident command system was created by the US government in the 1970s. It's what every single firefighter, policeman, EMS use in the country. Other countries use incident command system. The United Nations has endorsed it. And every single disaster type, federally declared disaster type, except for cyber, uses incident command system as the foundation for how they organize. And it's plug and play. If you're following uh, ICS for ICS, you could go to a completely different company and be a planning section chief there. And guess what? Same list of responsibilities. You're still doing the same thing. You can airlift the standardization and the yeah. repeatability of the framework, right? Yeah. You can airdrop me in as a planning section chief to support a hurricane or a tornado or a cyber event, and I'm still gonna be doing the same basic things, right? The taskings for what you do is what changes, right? Instead of sending a chainsaw strike team, you know, I'm going to send a malware response strike team. So the assets change, the customers change, but the way in which you respond and the operating model within which you uh, respond in, that is what remains consistent. Okay, that that I I knew it's funny. Just a couple of words clicked in place, even though I had been exposed to what you were doing with that before. Uh, that standardization, that concept, we're, we're resource constrained. We all are, and so we need more of that. It, it, you know, the, the, that person goes to a different company and they bring all that knowledge. It's reusable again. This all makes a lot of sense. We can't keep doing all this siloed. Not just this is one yet one example. There are other places too within our security space of siloed, independent you know, unique custom approaches. And, and, and that's just not, that's not good for our community. Well, so it's this not is, scalable. It's yeah. not scalable. And what, what I'm terrified about is that there will be a, a catastrophic cyber incident impacting multiple critical infrastructures in the United States at once. And DHS yeah. will be tasked with coordinating that response. And I want us all to be singing off of the same page of music when it comes to organizing that response because if everybody's response plans are different and people are calling different people we're, and we're not able to organize the resources that we have 
I don't know what's going to happen, but this yeah. is a train that we can see coming a mile away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's yeah. I, I hear your. You know, it's I always waver between you know the practical stuff, the day to day stuff, the non sexy big conflagration. But it's like, but we can't we can't forget that those things are possible. And we might even say there's an eventuality of some sort of big, like you said, multi-factor, different parties, different verticals, different parts of the industry and critical infrastructure being involved. And it's like, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, you start opening that box. There's a lot of a lot of interesting scenarios, interesting putting the word lightly. There's there's some scary scenarios in there, too. Exactly. And foundationally, when you're on a response, everybody should have a role. And everyone should be allowed to play that role and their role should be respected. And so it it prevents duplication of effort. You get the resources that you need. And the big thing is that you can hook into a larger structure. It would be very easy for DHS to stand up an incident commander uh, like they like they did uh, in response to Hurricane Katrina with that Allen. Right. We could see a similar response structure. Uh, propagate it through the private sector, but we have to have a way to mobilize and organize the private sector because most of our response resources in cyber are in the private sector. Yeah. So we don't, we need to tap into that so that we have some degree of surge capacity and organization to the response. And it doesn't take long to learn folks. I mean, you can take the online incident command system training through FEMA. It's free. You know, it's a few hours, get that 700 and 800 level courses done and you can speak the language of incident command. It may not be perfect and you may not be, you know, a type one planning section chief. But you know what? You're going to be familiar with the common terminology and what it means to plug into these org structures and what what are sit reps? What's a situational report? What's the standardized template for this? Let's not spend two hours filling this out. We can do it in five minutes because we've used the same template. So Megan, can you go back over what that is and where somebody can find it? I think that's a really interesting takeaway for people who might be listening to say, I could go get that and add that to my. Yes, absolutely. So check yeah. out icsforics.org. Okay. That is the ISA Global Cybersecurity uh, Alliance landing page there. And it has links to all the FEMA courses you can take. And it also has a process where you can apply to become a credentialed, uh, you know, cyber incident commander, planning section chief. And these are recognized by FEMA. So your credentials are being stored in the FEMA one responder portal as well. One yeah. responder portal as well. So go out, get trained and get get your ICS for ICS certification. But it's uh, NIMS uh, 700 and 800 level courses are the online FEMA training to take. But again, those links uh, can be found off the icsforics.org website. Does anybody need to have experience before doing that? Or could anyone so do if that? You go in, if you go in as a type four, which is entry level, you don't have to have a lot of experience. You just have to be in a role where it would be likely that you would be called upon to help support a cyber response. I mean, you could have someone in your finance team trained as a, you know, as a admin or finance section chief, for example. And that's important because they keep track of your of your cost, your hourly rate, you know, how to get things on contract. There's a lot that admin and finance do to support incident response that, you know, we never mentioned, right? But they're a vital part of the response. I, I saw a bunch of different scenarios and they had somebody in corporate communications and having nothing Absolutely. to do with cyber so far in their career. They want to add something to their resume and say, I got a little different component uh, that I know something about. They could add this. 
And that's entirely what responses are about is in many cases, you're not going to have a lot of cyber people, but you, to your point, you're going to be bringing in those tertiary partners, right? Finance, admin, legal, comms. That's who you're bringing in to support your organization because it's not just the cyber folks responding. It's an entire whole of organization response. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad we, I'm glad we, we ended up on this because I think that's, I'm always excited about these sort of, golden nuggets that come out of every one of these sessions that somebody can just grab onto today. And that's that's one of them for a bunch of different people out there that might. And it's all add. free and it's templated yeah. and there's response plans. So I love to use the case methodology for many things. Have you heard of this case C-A-S-E? Yeah, why don't you elaborate? It stands for copy and steal everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know where you were going to go with it. Okay. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, um, so a couple of, I think, things here, you know, as we wrap up our, our time together, which I'm sort of sad to do because we could go on for another hour easily. Uh, anything, if you were going to go back and give your younger self uh, some advice, anything come to mind? You, you've shared some stuff like this already, but just I always see if something pops out like, oh, yeah, I'd sit down across from myself and I'd say this. Yeah, that's a, it's a good one. And it's something that my younger self and even today. So I'm a type. <laughs> Enneagram, also known as the challenger. So sometimes uh, I have uh, I have within my core personality to to fight for things and to push for things and to insert myself into situations when I think that when I feel that things aren't going the way they need to. And I would just tell my younger self, it's all going to work out fine. Don't drive yourself crazy. Don't overly stress. Don't you know, cry at midnight because you don't think that you're going to be able to get something done with work or school the next day in grad school. It's all going to be okay. The universe is playing out exactly as it should be. There's no need to push, Megan. It's all playing out the way it needs to be. I love it. Sage, sage advice. I'm just wrapping up with Megan Sanford, VP and Chief Product Security Officer at Energy Management at Schneider Electric. It's been a great session. Uh, Megan, if you're up for it, I always like to end the show with the Pavot questionnaire. It's a French uh, questionnaire that was uh, has been borrowed before. So I, I was a big fan of a show called Inside the Actors Studio, where James Lipton, the longtime host who's now passed on, interviewed all the famous actors and actresses of multi-decades. And he ended his interviews always with the same 10 questions that he borrowed from this French show. So it's probably a 50-year-old questionnaire. So word for word, I've just adopted and, and so a little pay homage to uh, all those folks before and uh, use the same 10 questions to end my show. So if you're up for it, I'll give you the questionnaire. All right, let's do it. All right. What is your favorite word? Cool. What is your least favorite word? No. What turns you on either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, ideas. I ideas. I feel that everybody asks you, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? You know, I want to know what are you thinking? Like, what can we talk about? What's a new idea? What turns you off? Small talk. What is your favorite curse word? The F word. What sound or noise do you love? The sound of horses hooves on a cobblestone road and the sound of rain on tin roofs. What sound or noise do you hate? Mm, the sound of money being wasted. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Archaeology. If I could be anything, I would be Tomb Raider. What profession would you like to not do? 
Mm, something with numbers and a desk all day long. Anything like that I probably couldn't do. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, you know, it's good to see you. And uh, here's uh, here's Naomi and Addis and uh, and your and your dad's waiting for you here. Thank you, Megan Samford, VP, Chief Product Security Officer of Energy Management, Schneider Electric. Huge, huge contributor to our community and uh, passionate uh, at the highest level that someone can have for making a difference for our society. And so thank you for that and for coming on the show and, and being a good friend to our association, uh, all of those things. So thank you. No, thank you so much. It's been awesome. All right. Take care. Be well. I uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thank Bye you. Then. You too.